This is Ben Guest, and this is Ben Bo Podcast. Today's guest is Torshita Jackson. Torshita is an old friend, and she's been a teacher, coach, and is now a journalist based in Jackson, Mississippi. In this conversation, we go deep right away. Torshita and I have always had 100% honest conversations. Normally, when I edit my podcast, I cut out pauses. If there's a long pause, I'll cut it out. I left everything in for this. Here's my conversation with Torshita Jackson. Torshita, thanks for coming on. We talked off air and both thought it would be a good idea to just dive into this subject. You're a black woman who grew up in Mississippi, still lives in Mississippi. You raised a black man, Jay, who's now 24 years old. You're married to a black man. The two of you are raising two young black sons. What are your thoughts, feelings? Fear. Constant, consistent fear. That's the the only way I can describe it. You know, I have a son who is 24, and then I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And for your listeners, yes, I started completely over. And so I've I've lived this life before, and I can remember. Um, I don't even remember which set of riots it was at this point. Um, but my oldest son was, I think, a senior in high school. So that would have been 15, 14, 15. And he was just doing what he normally did. He was going out with some friends. They were friends of mixed races. Um, my children have always gone to school with people of mixed races. I've always felt that was important because I didn't. And I got to college and it was very shocking for me to understand. It wasn't shocking for me to be in the presence of mixed races, but to understand the differences was pretty shocking for me. Um, But back to the story, he was, he had gone out And I remember not being able to sleep. And it was literally like they had gone to a football game and gone to eat afterwards. And I'm watching the riots on TV. And I'm trying not to be a helicopter mom and text him every 10 minutes to ask him if he's okay. And I realized that night that I lived in fear. I live in fear every time my son leaves home. I live in fear, especially in his, in Mississippi. He, we live in Rankin County, and he went to school at Southern Miss. And so there were some counties that he had to drive through to get to college that I literally feared him driving through. I would try to make sure he left before dark or before it got late because I was just worried, you know. And we we have these conversations about if you were pulled over and anyone who knows my oldest Jay, he is a mouthpiece, but it's not disrespectful. He's just very smart and he's very aware of the world and what's happening in the world. And he's very aware of what's fair and what's not fair. And he has a very strong opinion about it. And I had to say to him, I get it, but you cannot say that. You cannot 
be vocal about you had no reason to pull me over. You cannot be vocal about I didn't do anything. Please, please, please just keep your hands on the steering wheel and be quiet. And I think that so many people who don't raise Black men in the South don't get it. Or Black men, period. And so now I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and I'm already dreading the point where they are old enough to drive or hang out with friends because I mean, that's life and they have to experience that. But I dread it already because I remember that fear and I remember that worry. And I just don't know. It's kind of, you don't know when to start the conversations. You know, you have to. You question how young they need to be when you need to tell them about the world that they live in. You question whether or not you are creating biases for them that you shouldn't, but you know they need to be informed. And I also recognize that even though I'm a Black woman, I will never walk in the shoes of a Black man. And so as much as I can prepare them, I can't. And so I just go back to the word fear. And I cannot imagine being one of those mothers on the news. I cannot imagine being George Floyd's family right now, reliving this on every media outlet possible. I don't think I would have the same strength. I don't. I don't think I would have the same strength as Trayvon Martin's parents. I just don't think I would have it. And I don't want to ever have to. You know, just when you mentioned George Floyd's family and then Trayvon, Trayvon Martin's family. And of course I lived in Mississippi for 12 years. You know, my mind flashes to Emmett Till and, and his mother. I mean, this shit has been going on over and over and over again. First weekend of February, my husband, you know, we are, we are big believers in making sure that our children know our history. And so we drove up, my husband is from um, Leake County, which is <clears throat> next door to Neshoba County. We drove up to find all these places. And I'm from Knoxville County, which is kind of on the other side, couple couple counties over. So we drive and we find murdered the the three, you know, Schwarner, Chaining, and Goodman. And we drive out to where they found to the church. And we drive out to where they found the car. And I called my mother and I said, I've driven this road my entire life going from my house to Jackson. For people who don't know about Nashville County, it is a very small community right on the Alabama line. 
And so most people in that area will go to Jackson for doctor's appointments or for shopping or for anything major. Jackson, of course, is the, the capital of the state. And I passed that spot. There's no marker there. But, but I realized I had passed that spot all my life and didn't realize that's where they found that car. Search for that pond. We never did find it. Um, we were on the road, but we never did find it. We think it's kind of back off the road on private property. But it was so surreal. It was so surreal to, to be in those spaces. And we said we were going to go to, to money. Um, we didn't, we never made it. Other things came up. Of course, Mississippi had a huge ice storm and then we ended up quarantined, but none of us had COVID, but we were quarantined. So we didn't make it, but just that was just so eye-opening and shocking for me because I grew up in a in a home where my parents talked about the civil rights movement all my life um and my mother even said she didn't know where they found the car and when I told her she was like you know she had passed it her whole life too but to live in a state where all of these things happened with many people who act like none of them happened It's like a whole other, I don't even have words. It's almost like, yeah, that happened, but we're not going to talk about it. We don't want to talk about the ugly history of Mississippi. We're just going to move on from here. No, it's who we are. And until we recognize, I firmly believe that, until we're able to say those things are not right, they were not right then, the things that happened are not right now, we cannot change. We cannot move forward. I just don't, I don't know how we get out here. I try so hard to figure out how we got here. And I guess in my heart, I know, but I don't know. You say in your heart, you know, you know, but you don't know. Uh, and, and let's talk about that. The other thought that I had while you're speaking is all of us individually have dealt with some type of trauma, I'm sure. And there's a phrase that I like you might be done with your trauma, but your trauma is not done with you. Until you address it, it's not done with you. And I think the same is true uh, on, a, on the level of a state in terms of Mississippi and on the level of a country in terms of America. You may think you're done with your trauma, but your trauma is not done with you. But you said in your heart, you know, and you don't know. What, what do you know? Yes, 
how do I frame this? Um, African-Americans were not supposed to be here. Black people were brought to this country as slaves, to be slaves. And at some point, someone decided or recognized, not decided, recognized that was not right. And so they, quote unquote, fixed it. But I think the deeply rooted belief that these people that are not truly members of this country are not the same as the other people in this country was never let go of. Yeah, you're human and so you have the right to exist in the same space that we exist in, but you're not the same as us. And those firmly held beliefs were passed down from generation to generation to generation. They were instilled in children And I also believe that as a black race, we were never never able to release that ourselves. Like I don't feel like we were ever able to truly believe we are the same, we are equal. Part of it, yes, because we were never treated that way. Part of it because we didn't have the same opportunities. And so, yeah, our income levels are often not on par with other races. But part of it because it was so deeply embedded in our ancestors when they were brought here. And so in my heart, I know that we were never supposed to be where we are today. We were never supposed to be free. We were never supposed to be walking around. We were never supposed to be educated. We were never supposed to hold jobs and be doctors and lawyers and engineers. But I also just want to believe that when people recognized, hey, it's not fair to have this group of people here and not treat them like human beings that it would have truly changed and that people's mindsets would have truly changed and i guess that's just my hopes and wishes yeah and especially during the george w bush years you talked about terrorism, the war on terrorism. This is American terrorism from day one, embedded within the founding of this country. This country was founded on the twin evils of slavery and genocide, slavery of Africans and genocide of indigenous people. And it's, that's terrorism from day one till now. You mentioned James Cheney, and he was murdered, of course. He was murdered by American terrorists. 
and his mother had to move out of Mississippi because she continued to receive so many death threats. You know, that was back in the day when you had a house phone, you know, there was no caller ID, you couldn't block people. Like the phone rang and you didn't know if it was your neighbor or if it was an American terrorist threatening you after your son was murdered. American terrorism runs so deep, it's not enough to murder someone. You have to continue that instilling that fear. That was the first word you said, instilling that fear in other people. And like you said, there's never been any attempt to reconcile that. And I think for me, the craziest thing right now is that it's just glossed over. I've had so many conversations with people within the last year. And it was almost two-sided. I had several of my former coworkers to say, you know, I really hadn't thought about it that way. I, I, have, I really didn't know I have children and I've never had to have these conversations with my children. I've never had to, to have that type of fear. And I didn't know that's what you live with every day. I think I made a, a Facebook post and several of them kind of commented back. And then there's this flip side of the coin where people walk past you and are like, oh, I think they're overreacting. Um, you know, it wasn't that and it's not that bad and it's not the way you see it. It's not the way some people are trying to make it. And it's really hard for me to reconcile that there are people who really believe that. And I'm not against police. I'm not a defund the police person. But I would say the same thing to anyone. Like if I'm in the street and you and I are fighting and I put my knee on your neck and you die. I don't know. It's just, it's hard for me to reconcile feelings around it. It really is. And it's hard for me to be honest about how I feel because I often worry, well, what are people going to say or think when I say how I really feel? So it's, it's also a matter of not only do you have these emotions, but you can't share them with a number of people in your life, probably most people that you interact with. Most people that I interact with have no idea how I feel. And I had this conversation with a friend the other day and I said, it's almost like you live, I don't, inside of a costume or a mask because you, you have this persona that you display over here that is this brick wall, that is this facade and nobody knows how you really feel. And then on this side, you have all these worries for your children that you would think you'd be able to share with other parents, but you really can't. And so you end up talking about it in your little small circle. 
and it stays within that small circle. But I also believe that that feeds the, that keeps it from changing. Because when we talk about it in our small circle, then the people outside of that circle still don't know how you feel. They still don't know how it affects you. And so you, you keep it in your small circle because you, you don't want people to look at you a certain way, but then that keeps you from helping the people outside that circle understand why you feel that way or why they should be just appalled at what happens. And it's almost cyclic in itself. So maybe in some ways we are continuing that cycle. When you say we're continuing that cycle, who do you mean? Everybody. Everybody, but black men, parents of black boys, specifically those, but then everybody. Because I also feel, and this may be stretching it, I would love for someone to come to me and ask me, how do you feel about this and not a specific case per se but how do you feel about the conversations you have to have with your son it's no secret that black parents have specific conversations with their black sons about how to act beyond just with the police like i remember telling one of jay's former teachers that i talked to him about how you dress how you wear your hair whether or not you get a tattoo, whether or not you get your ears pierced, because I, and I would tell him, because they're going to judge you based on all of those things. They're going to judge you if your music is up too loud in your car. And you're a smart kid. So who cares if you like rap music? You're smart, you're respectable. But if you drive down the street and your rap music is up loud in your car, they're going to automatically label you this way. And I would love to have conversations with people about that. I would love to have conversations with people about why I forbade my son to have dreadlocks when he was in high school. No, sir, you will not. They're much more common now, but no, no, you will not you will not dredge your hair because that just gives people another reason to profile you. No, you will not put rims on your car. This is another reason for people to profile you. Turn your radio down. And those seem like really simple you know, saying it out loud, it almost seems crazy. But those are parts of the conversation too, because people are going to look at you because of how you look and how, and it doesn't even get to the point where it's how you present yourself because it stops at how you look. You're not going to get an opportunity to present yourself as who you are because you look a certain way. And that's part of profiling too. How old is Jay now? Jay is 24 and he's a United States Marine. 
What what kind of conversations do you have with him now? We still have those same conversations. Strangely enough, 24 years old, we still have those same conversations. Um, they're not as in-depth now because we've talked about it so long, but they are, if you're ever pulled over, don't argue, don't fight, get out of the car, make sure your hands can be seen, don't raise your voice. Um, don't reach for your wallet. Don't reach for anything in your car. We have conversations about like what his car needs to look like. <laughs> like don't tint your windows. Don't put rims on. Don't, you know, all those things that guys like to do to their vehicles. Um, and he has a wife, you know, and so we, we talk about when you have children, make sure they understand, especially if it's a boy, make sure he understands, make sure he knows. And so those conversations don't stop, I guess. Maybe at some point they will, but they haven't for us. And he still asks me the same questions he asked me back then, mama, but why? And it's one of those questions that as a mom, I've never had an answer to. And I likely never will. And I still have that here. He is states away from me. And I can't get to him like when he was at USM or when he was around the corner. He estates away from me. And I still have that fear. And he's a living, breathing, respectable member of the community. Still fear it. When you have these conversations, what's what's Jay's response besides asking you why? I know, Mama. He says all the time, I know, Mama. I know, Mama. I know, Mama. And Jay is still very vocal. But I think that he knows how much fear I live with. And if he can just make sure that I understand or that I know that he understands, I think he feels like that will release me of a little bit of the, the fear that I have. And so he'll tell me, I know mom, I know. And I've made him promise, promise me Jay. I promise mom, I promise. So it's almost like he's trying to, to help relieve you of some of your fear. Definitely. And that's a burden for that's a burden for a child to carry. But definitely. I mean, even in high school, he was the same way. Mama, I know. I know what to do. I know how to act. I've got my license. I've got my insurance. 
but I think I've said it to him so much. We've discussed it so much. I was very, very open with him about my feelings and my fear for him because I felt like he needed to know. He needed to know that your mother is literally afraid for you to drive and hang out with your friends or to drive back to school. And he needed to understand why. I needed I needed it to be, I needed him to understand how important it was. Because I think a lot of times, teenagers, period, just gloss over things their parents say. Oh, yeah, mama said that. Mama's being mama. No, I needed to drive this point home. Because this may be the point that brings you home. And so I think now he's, we've had those conversations so long and he understands how I really, how deeply I feel about this, that he does. He tries to protect me. He tries to alleviate some of that, that fear that I have. Growing up, what kind of conversations did you have with your mom? You know, we didn't have these conversations. Um, we talked a lot about the civil rights movement and the importance of the civil rights movement and the things that had happened. We talked a lot about the past. But I don't ever remember having a conversation with my mom about how to dress or what to wear or how to act if you're pulled over or any of that. And I don't know if it was that the times were different or my mom just didn't worry about it as much, but we didn't. We didn't talk like this. We didn't have these conversations. Um, I was always, it was always impressed upon me, the importance of education, the importance of an education, the importance of intelligence and presenting yourself well but I don't think that was ever framed in the context of race. It was just what you did. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, because we're kind of touching on the idea of how these things are passed on or not passed on from generation to generation. And it may have been that I was female. I mean, it's definitely less, a slightly less threat. Not completely less, but a slightly less threat that I'm female. Um, but I can definitely believe that my sons will pass it on. And I think that's because I have, again, drove that point home to them. And so they will drive it home to their children, which is as I think about it, very sad. And I just pray that they don't have to. That's my conversation with Torshita Jackson. We talked for a bit afterwards. We thought, we talked about, should we try to wrap up on a, a lighter note, a brighter note? And we both felt that no, we shouldn't. Normally, 
I, say, I end the podcast by saying have a great day. Today, please have a reflective day.